Hello, and welcome to Talking Tropes. My name is David. And I'm Hannah. And guys, uh, the the world's ending. I don't know if you noticed. It's the end of the world. It's the apocalypse. It's Armageddon. It's Deep <laughs> Impact. It's, it's Don't Look Up. Um, <laughs> today we are looking at um, a trope that has had a recent resurgence. And by recent, I mean like last year and this year um and and is very much in the discourse which is that of the deep impact the um the rock that hits the earth the earth ending the planet killing rock yeah the comet the the (laughs) asteroid the meteor David David's got thesaurus daily uh he's he's really working on it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, th- I think it's interesting that, like, all of these things mean the same thing to us. That they come across as synonyms when they are, you know, scientifically not. Sure. Um, they're all different things. And the stories, you know, of these different films that we're going to discuss are very different in their in their centrality, and their focus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they all capture... Exactly what you said at the start. The, this this anxiety that it's the end of the world. Right. And and these are like science fiction films, right? Yeah, yeah. I think we can safely say that. A, an yeah. asteroid has not come to destroy modern human civilization. And right. I, I think, yeah. But unlike a lot of science fiction films, they don't require any scientific impetus, you know? Mm -hmm. It doesn't require, like, a specific invention to be forged for the plot to be kicked off. Right. Or, you know, we don't have to imagine a future society every time that we do Mm -hmm. an asteroid-hitting movie. Right. I mean, they're they're very much in line with, um, you know, disaster movies in general, you know? Right. it's an act of nature. It's an act of God. Like, a tsunami right. sometimes just happens. Sometimes an earthquake happens. Sometimes a hurricane happens. Um, right. And I that's what I really like about Sontag's piece is that it draws this, like, connection between science fiction and disaster movie, which often do have these, like, similar uh, scales and scopes, you know, like an alien invasion or you know, uh, a big volcano erupting. I mean, they both are these, like, forces of nature mm-hmm. um, destroying all human life, or at least threatening all human life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the kind of scale that we work in when we have an asteroid or a comet. And uh, th- this particular, like, plot line, like, I don't even know if it's a trope, but it's just, like, a plot, right? <laughs> yeah. But... It's existed so long. Um, I, you can take it back pre-film uh, to H.G. Wells, who wrote a story called The Star, which is about mm-hmm. you know a rogue star coming in, crashing, or, or going right by Earth and destroying the planet. Mm-hmm. Later on, you have one of the early silent films, uh, a Danish film called... Uh, Called Verdens Undergang, which means, uh, you know, the end of the world, doomsday. Okay. Uh, which is a, a comet, uh, you know, crashing into, into the earth mm-hmm. and the social ramifications of that. So, <laughs> you know, 1913 is, is that film. And uh, now 
more than a hundred years later, we're still obsessed with comets hitting the Earth. Do, yeah. do you think there's any significance to comets versus asteroids versus meteors? Do you even remember no. the difference? <laughs> Um, I think, you know, as they're used in in movies, there's no difference. You know, the point mm. is there's a giant space rock coming towards the Earth and it's going to kill us all. Well, the, the Lacanian in me, I say <laughs> pretentiously, uh, it, it says that like, well, the comet is much more, you know, sperm-like, you know, with the tail. Okay. I think there's a it's a more masculine you know See I get force. I I I've never associated comets with with masculinity. Just the shapes, you know, it's this, it's this tiny little thing with a tail and then the earth is this big round like egg. You know, I I also find that the I, you know, there's some correlation because the movies that I looked at that had comets as opposed to meteors um, often had a subplot about father-daughter reconciliation. Um, really? It was a running thread, or, or father-son. Um, the father and, and you know, reckoning with fatherly tension I, seems I... to be a running thread in Deep Impact, <laughs> Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, um, and, uh, and, and also... How it ends, the 2021 indie film that was made during the pandemic. Okay. Um, well, I mean, it's it's sort of in Don't Look Up as well, but that movie is trying to do like everything. So what isn't in right. there is probably a better <laughs> measure. <laughs> right. Well, I suppose there's sort of father daughter tension, but yeah, maybe maybe we ought to just sort of jump into that since it's the 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 source of all of the controversy sure start with don't look up don't look up this is satire you know we've we've moved past the the science fiction action adventure version of this trope we we pretty much exhausted that in the 90s and we're no longer interested in seeing people blow up uh a, a an asteroid in a dangerous mission we now are you know, so aware of the tropes that they become pastiche, they become satire. Right. Or one or the other. You know, this one, I would say, is more satire, and maybe how it ends is more pastiche. I don't know. This this one was tricky for me, um, mostly because it felt like the same joke over and over and over and over and over again, you know? So you don't think that the... the the commentary develops as no. the fun goes on. No, it it has it's one, one now. It's got one thing to say and it says it and Well what how would you sum it up, the the message of don't look up? Rich people bad manipulate people's fears to profit. I don't think that accurately portrays the message of the film, uh, at all. Really? Uh, no, I don't think that the film is that uh, that obsessed with class as uh, as the marker of 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 social division. I think it's more concerned with relations in uh, in in conceptions of of truth and ethic. You know, like 
in describing our reality. You know, this is going back to our Matrix conversation. You know, it's a mediated story. It's a story about how our truth is mediated. Okay. And it's a story about how news comes from a source mm -hmm. that we ascribe some kind of legitimacy to, mm -hmm. but that legitimacy is created by a political order that is meant to, you know, constrain uh, the ability of, 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 of a population to make collective decisions about what's best for it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I mean, I guess that's a more complicated way of just saying rich people bad, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think it is that. I think it's, it's not rich people bad. It's, uh, media, no tell truth, you know? Right. But it's like, yes, it's very concerned with misinformation, but I think it's also, you know, it's specifically looking to say why this why our media landscape is the way it is. You know, it's not just being like, oh, the media's like this. Stupid no, media. I, I think that's true. I think it's yeah. it's, it's worth exploring. And this is not <laughs> I, I think it is worth exploring, but I don't think that Don't Look Up explores it in any particularly insightful way that, you know, other other things haven't done before and that you know other people oh it's can't certainly treading better. on it's certainly treading on well-worn ground i mean like it's it's earliest influence probably being uh dr strange love mm -hmm. and then more recently i think it's way closer to network um the 1970s mm. uh commentary on network television <laughs> um even though this is more about cable news, I guess, and the internet and social media. But, yeah. you know, I guess slightly updated for a slightly different age. <laughs> like, it just, to me, it seemed like a bloated episode of Black Mirror, you know? <laughs> like, that's how I, I thought about Don't Look Up. I think it's so much more... Okay, there's so much well, more then... to it than Black Mirror. <laughs> now, like, I will say, like... One of the things you said to me before we started recording was, like, it was a very difficult film to watch for you. Could could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, and just how dull it was. <laughs> like... Okay, so I didn't think that was what you meant. Because this was a difficult film for me to watch as well. But it was because when I watch it, um, when I see the scientists played by Leonardo DiCaprio and... Um, and J-Law. <laughs> I call her J-Law. Not um, to be confused with J-Lo. Well, that was... That, that's why she got the nickname. It was a ripoff. Ugh. But she... She is representing, like, to me, like, the audience who wants to scream at the scientists... Or at the, uh... At the reporters and mm -hmm. at the president... How can you be so calm about this? How can you be doing nothing to stop this comet from crashing into Earth? This needs to be a priority. We're all going to die. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, the hard-to-watch aspect of it was the truth in how difficult it is for her to convey this information without coming across as fear-mongering or, you know, hysterical, mm -hmm. uh, you know, shrill. <laughs> right. That, that that kind of, 
you know, I often feel the same way. And I know that, you know, my mom is always screaming at the television that nothing (laughs) is getting done to address the imminent danger of climate change and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the other problems that are looming over our heads. Right. Um, You know, including COVID-19, which I think during the production of this film, there were certain elements that were added to make this metaphor sort of stretch a little bit to cover COVID-19 as well. Mm. What what stood out to you as like a COVID-19 inclusion? So I, I'm almost positive this was added during production, but the scenes where Leo DiCaprio goes on Sesame Street to discuss mm. the, the issue, mm-hmm. um, that seems to be like a direct commentary or parody of the CNN... Uh, meets with the Muppets to talk about COVID-19 specials. Mm. Uh, Because I haven't seen uh, any Sesame Street uh, climate change episodes. And maybe they exist, but they they aren't as highly publicized. I think they definitely do exist. Um, Well, I'm, I'm sure they address the environment and recycling and doing these things. But not like a Sesame Street where they say, there's danger coming crops are dying people are going to need to flee their homes you know like elmo saying just so you know you know the oceans are rising and you know a lot of people are gonna have to leave their homes and food is gonna be harder to come by and animals are dying like i don't think that is a sesame street thing but hey the scientists have developed this vaccine and you guys have to take it like that is very much a sesame street thing something that <laughs> our media is used for sure yeah, yeah yeah um you know it's the spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down right well i you know i i think a lot of like the negative press that i've seen for don't look up has been about how it fails as a metaphor like how a, a comet hitting the earth fails as a metaphor for climate change mm-hmm. and I, i'm not really that interested in that but if, if you found that to be part of where the satire fails, then maybe you could. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think that was my issue with the film, you know, like I think. Like, like I, I also, I, I think I would have liked it better if it was just shorter. (laughs) Like, like I, I maybe that's a terrible um I don't think that it really was, gets it was just to like, what was, is the point of it. <laughs> it it's like I don't know, at least for me, I just found it to be wildly meandering, you know, like we're over here and we're following Leonardo DiCaprio's character like getting famous and having an affair and like doing all this stuff and I'm like like well, you don't why? find you don't find that him being co-opted by the media system to be central to the message of the film. Like in in sure, but I don't think we needed to devote that much time to it. Like I I don't. But think that it's is as what the movie central. is about. It's about how a scientist who begins as an idealistic. I mean, that's the story. The the scientist who begins as an idealistic truth teller, speaking truth to power, ultimately, because he is co-opted into the system, he gets labeled as media savvy. 
But he's not really media savvy. He is a tool of the media. Sure. You know? He's like, oh, well, you know how to deal with the camera. But in reality, he's just being taken control of by the camera. And his associate, J-Law, is not media savvy because she actually is able to speak truth and and speak from emotion and speak from a human place as opposed to a media savvy place. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when he goes and has the affair, you know, it's it's supposed to represent his, you know, he's drifting away from his, his values, but, you know, it, it's a character study. But, like, it spends so much time not being a character study to also then try to be a character study. Like, it's trying to do too much. It's trying to be this general satire that's covering, you know, the the disaffected grad student and the, the youth issues and, you know, growing up knowing that you're not going to make it past your 20s or your 30s. And, you know, trying to do Leonardo DiCaprio's whole arc, uh, you know, also, like, the horrible, terrible jokes. I just didn't find it funny either, like, all of the jokes with Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill where she's, like, Lady Trump or whatever, you know, like... She's not Lady Trump. She is Lady Trump. Like, what do you mean She is all politics. She is what politics, you know, refuses to reveal itself to be, you know? She is unapologetically obsessed with her image and her image is what the media is focused on as opposed to the content of her actual politics you know her politics are irrelevant to the image of her you know you see her on the cover of time like smoking a cigarette and it's like the scandal of her smoking the cigarette is far more important to people than what is actually being done in our system of government right but I, it's, it's, it's also, she's Lady Trump. Like, she's both of those things. Like, I don't, I don't understand how that's, like, up for debate. Well, I just, I just don't think that there, you know, I don't think that there's much substance to that, you know? Like, what are the real similarities between her and Trump? I guess just that she is, you know, uh... Uh, unapologetic you know she's unash- i mean she's shameless like that's yeah. the similarity i mean sure but i think i and i agree that she's trying to not she i agree that the film is trying to use her as this sort of trump stand-in and use that shamelessness to further push the point that you were talking about with how truth is manipulated by the media uh-huh. And I I agree that that's part of it, but like, I I find her so blatantly uninteresting. You know, like we all know Trump is bad and is manipulating the media. Give yeah, me a the, politician the, who's the film like, is not is not saying Trump is bad. I mean, that would be an insane reading of the film. What? The, f- the film is Trump not is pointing good. at Trump. And th- I mean, th- I think that's part of the reason that they cast Meryl Streep in the role mm-hmm. is because, you know, she is this. I mean, it's, you know, she's like a, a Selena Meyer, you know, a Veep type character. Mm-hmm. You know, she she goes beyond a particular, you know, pastiche of a, a singular politician. She's lampooning the whole system. 
No? No, I really think she's very Trumpian. Like, especially with the whole don't look up movement. Like, Right, well, that like, is, you know, that is the zeitgeist we have to talk about, about climate change denial as sure. a, a thing. So how do you talk about that without acknowledging that there is a, a partisan element to it? I mean, I, I don't think there there is... There doesn't have to be a way of talking about it without being partisan. What I think I find, you know, annoying <laughs> is that Mitch McConnell is, like, just as complicit in all of this shit as Trump. You know, like, the, the politics in general, I, I want it to do what you think it's doing, but I think it's too focused in. She is too similar to Trump to really be doing standing in for all politicians. She's too easy to write off as Lady Trump, whether or not that's an accurate reading. I think the average person will come away from this and say, she's Lady Trump, Trump bad. I mean, I I suppose that that kind of tracks, but I don't know how you then account for... I, I mean, most of the story is told through this social media narrative, you know, the... The, the blowing up of don't of don't look up, you know, she co-opts that. She doesn't come up with it. She adopts it as a way to, you know, further her political campaign, even though she knows for a fact that the comet is out there and is the one doing something to stop it. It's mm-hmm. a sort of, you know, two sides of the mouth thing, which I think is very much like Trump mm-hmm. in the way that he dealt with COVID, you know, simultaneously saying, Look at me, I created these vaccines, you know, the vaccines are brilliant, you know, Project uh, Warp Speed was a phenomenal success. At the same time, the COVID, it's, you know, it's not really that big a deal, we can't shut down the economy over it, it's not a big deal, whatever, you're free to choose whether you get the vaccine or not. You Mm -hmm. know, like, these are the, the sort of contradictory things that Meryl Streep's character is doing as she simultaneously says... Yes, a comet is coming to hit us and I'm going to stop it using my brilliance. Also, if you believe the comet doesn't exist, you're right. You know, don't look up where all these other people would. I don't know. I also thought the Jonah Hill thing where he, you know, outlines the different sides of this culture war being, you know, the liberal elites, the working poor, and the cool rich, you know? (laughs) He, you know, he's he's identified that, you know, the elites as a class don't really exist in the minds of voters. Right. They are selective about who is elite and who is not. Um, elites just means people you don't like, uh, basically. The cool right. rich are not elites. They're right. like you. And they need you to clean their spas or, you know, <laughs> you know, clean their floors, whatever. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, I agree with all of that, <laughs> like on the political, but not on the, but you don't think it's there or you do think it's there. You just don't think it's funny, which is fine. I, I, I just genuinely did not find most of it funny. Like most of the jokes sure. didn't land for me. It like, that's what I'm saying. It seemed very one note. You know, and it just continued to hammer in for two and a half hours, which is a long time. Um, 
you know, like well, I just what well, I I think we've hit these... on many different notes, different like you I I think it's strange that you say it goes too many places and it's one note. No, no, no. It's got too many different too many different plots and it's trying to it's trying to critique and satirize the media, politicians, um, you know, how those two things interact with truth, how business, uh, you know, and and moneyed interests interact with truth and these right. Decisions. Well, let's let's talk about but, that for. Hold a on, minute. can I finish? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's trying to do all of those things, but it just is like, do you see they're doing that? That's pretty bad, huh? Crazy. Like, I mean, that's what a, I felt like it was doing to satire. me the entire time. But, like, it wasn't an interesting satire. It was just like, isn't it silly that these people are so bad for, like, two well, and a I half hours? Well, I don't think it's simply pointing to bad actors and saying those bad actors are acting in bad faith. It's saying that there's a system through which the media is incentivized to downplay the impact of certain, you know, impending truths... Uh, right, but and it's, it doesn't. It's, it's directly satirizing focus. our assumption that, yeah, in most science fiction films about big rocks hitting the earth, there's an immediate and coordinated response. Mm-hmm. Almost every single one on this list has mm-hmm. that, except for the ones where it's deemed too inevitable to have a response. Mm-hmm. And usually those are comedies anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. So in this one, it's not, it's inevitable. It can't be prevented. It's it can be prevented if there were a coordinated response like an Armageddon or Deep Impact. But we're seeing we're seeing what is happening in our reality to an actual uh, world impacting apocalypse. I'm sorry, that last point confused me. Like well, climate change could right. potentially wipe out all human life. Yeah, okay. Yes. Um... And you're saying that this is, this like, the movie's the metaphor for that, and it's trying to be painful <laughs> on purpose? Like, I think it is a difficult film to watch because it reflects back at us uh, our own massive failings, you know? Like, it is, it is literally a fact that we are too late to stop a huge amount of the impact of climate change. And yet we still have to, you know, press on in the knowledge that we are too late to stop a big chunk of it. Mm-hmm. That's crazy that we just go through life just, you know, like it doesn't exist. Like there isn't a big rock hurtling at us and we're just ignoring it. Mm-hmm. Um, I It's like, it's wild to me. Um and so for that reason, I found it a difficult film to watch. But it wasn't because I, you know, didn't find the critique to be complex enough. I, I, I'm surprised by that reading. I, I mean, maybe it's not that it... Like, like I just felt like it was a two and a half hour long lecture. <laughs> you know? Like... I mean, it has a message. But right, I don't think but... it's a lecture. It's told in the form of like improv you know, back and forth, snappy, I didn't like find jokey it's... jokes. I, like that I is didn't the find nature this... of it. I didn't find the snappy jokey jokes 
fun. fun. I didn't find sure. that funny. I, didn't I don't. Find interesting. I, I get that. So, like, that's not what that, I'm. Okay. I'm not trying to make you like the film. Okay. I'm trying to see if you understand what the film is conveying informationally. So if you think it's a lecture, let's talk about what it's saying. You know. Okay. Like, let's talk about the tech stuff because I think that this is some of the best parts of the critique and the most complex aspects of it. Okay. Because we have this tech billionaire who is sort of a generic, um, you know, Bezos, Elon Musk, Musk Bezos-type yeah. figure who he has this magical thinking-type solution, which we see constantly. The idea that, like, electric cars will save us or a better battery, a better solar panel, a better wind farm. Like, some kind of investment in technology will save us. Biden who has explicitly said no Green New Deal ever, has said that a huge part of his, you know, climate change reaction plan is to invest in science and hope that, you know, we just stumble across something perfect that solves everything. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things preventing the president from, you know, just sending up a rocket to push the uh, comet out of the way is that she feels that if we can use the comet to fuel our economy by, you know, sending up these magical drones that will, using science and AI, harvest the comet and bring the pieces down for us to use, you know, like, if we do that, then everyone will be happy, we'll save the world and make a nice profit off of it. And I think that's exactly what people are trying to do with climate change right now, imagining, you know... I mean, do you remember, like, solar roadways? Do you remember those things? Yeah. It was, like, a viral video from, yeah, I think, yeah. 2010, 12, something like that. Yeah. I, I was obsessed with that video yeah. for for a little while. I was like, oh, yeah, we'll just we'll just do solar roadways and pave our, our streets with solar panels. And it's like, this is the least cost-effective way <laughs> to solve climate change. It wouldn't solve climate change. <laughs> And it would create hazardous driving conditions for everybody so that no one could effectively drive from place to place. And they're still driving in cars, mind Right. Guess. Yeah. <laughs> like, magical thinking. That's, that's what that character is about to me. And, uh, yeah, his plan fails. I don't know. Like, I think that's something. No, I agree. I, I thought that the tech aspect... Um... That felt, maybe not new, but it felt to me the the most, um, I don't even know. I, I guess I just liked it the most. Like, it, I agree that there, there's definitely, even among people who, you know, otherwise tend to be science-driven people, um, you know, or potentially centrist or liberal or left-leaning, there still sometimes ends up being this tech worship. Um, yeah. And, you know, deification of these Musks and Bezoses and Gates. Um, and like, I mean, uh, it harkens back to our obsession with, like, if we can get to the moon, we can beat communism, you know? Right, <laughs> like, right. 
if we can build a better bomb, you know, we can save the world. It's right. This like, idea that we can innovate our way out of disaster um, right. instead of using the tools we already have at hand to just avert it. And 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 I liked that, you know, he was talking about, you know, like he convinces uh, the president to not blow up the asteroid because... Right. He's like, I'm going to harvest the the minerals from it and we'll all get right. filthy rich. Right. And it'll create jobs. You yeah. Know? Like everyone's like, oh, the jobs that this comet can can create, that's mm-hmm. more important than than pushing it out of the way and ensuring that we, you know, survive. Um, I, I mean, I think about like coal jobs and, mm-hmm. you know, clean coal. Things that, like people just making up buzzwords and and convincing politicians that this is the most politically advantageous way to sell climate change, mm-hmm. which is a it's selling. I mean, we changed the name from global warming to climate change because it sells. It's a media apparatus. <laughs> yeah. Um... I don't know. I think I think there's something salient in. In that film. And I think that, like, the discourse surrounding it has become super toxic exactly because of this subjective, you know, thing about humor. You know, humor is incredibly subjective. And if it's not funny, if it doesn't make you laugh, it's not funny. Yeah. Um, And so the, the, the discourse has become, oh, is this a bad film being sold on a faux progressive you know, save the world message? Or is it, you know, <laughs> the satire that perfectly encapsulates our times with a humorous bent? Um, I, I'll let the listener decide. <laughs> um, it can be both. It can, it, it can obviously it can be both. And it can be, you know, mean different neither. things to, to different people. Um, I want to talk about a, a, I believe it's a 2012 movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Little Steve Carell, Steve Carell, jeez. Um, that is Steve Carell. It is, it is Steve Carell, but I thought I said Cavell. Um, <laughs> Steve, Steve Carell got really pigeonholed in the early 2000s into the <laughs> depressed, middle-aged, midlife crisis guy. Um in uh, in crazy stupid love and this uh, yeah. are the first two examples that come to mind but seeking a friend for the end of the world um let's talk about like what if the comet is not climate change what if it's just not being able to get out of bed without stretching or you know having your wife leave you <laughs> you know what if it's like aches and pains what if that's the comet is that the comet like the comet is middle age the comet is not being a young person (laughs) it's impending it's imminent i guess yeah what did you think of the film i don't know this one had moments that actually made me laugh so that's that's a plus in my book great (laughs) what were some Um, of those moments i think Oh, and let's dissect. Um, oh boy, I did. Um, I'll, t- of... I'll tell you something that that you know I laughed at that that was a, a pretty like genre staple of this like impending doomsday comedy, yeah. which is the scene of the um, 
the restaurant yeah. on the side of the road where you have, you know, various comedic characters who are just, they're free. They're free of society. Mm-hmm. And somehow, like, the Doomsday, it, it also, it it, uh, it lets you let go of your inhibitions, let go of social norms, and so you can make out with whoever you want to. You can serve things that are off menu. It, it was like a... Um, it was like an Applebee's type restaurant. Yeah. It was it was a uh, friendlies parody specifically. Right. And uh and so all of the employees there have turned it into a sort of um a burning orgy. man. <laughs> yeah, an orgy. Uh and and I thought that was you know partially it's just an interesting humorous thing that's absent from Armageddon, you know. Yes. That's absent from the more recent Greenland film, you know, which is like a dour representation of an entire population trying to get into tiny little shelters, you know, and trying to kill each other to get into them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know you're going to die, maybe that's a little bit, um, what's the word? Um, freeing, cathartic. F- freeing, cathartic, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, yeah, I can't that's, think of the that's... actual word. That's what I think I enjoyed about um, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Because there's definitely a lot that was cringy and eye-roll-inducing about this film as well. Um, But I I enjoyed that we got to see a variety of uh, reactions to the end. There's rioting in in one of the earlier scenes. but I, I don't know. I just can't help but think that literally any other person on Earth would have been a better subject, you know, for this film <laughs> than Steve Carell's character, right? Fair enough. He Fair is enough. dull as a sack of dirt. He is, um, <laughs> you know, he's a guy who worked in insurance. Like, that's yeah. that's ironic. Uh, because now no one needs insurance. They're all going yeah. to die. Yeah. Their death is insured. Um, Mm -hmm. and his wife leaves him and he falls in love with Natalie Portman? No. No. Kira Knightley. the other one. Kira Knightley. (laughs) The other identical twin. They look identical. Um, (laughs) (laughs) he falls in love with Kira Knightley, um, who is just this manic pixie dream girl. A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, he, she brightens up his life with her whimsy and love of music on vinyl. Whoa. How exotic. Um, (laughs) I I hated their relationship. I hated the last shot of the movie being them lovingly (laughs) stroking each other's hair in bed when he's Steve Carell, you know, he's a dorky dad, you know, he's, but she he's grew. He, he's the love of her life, David. He's the <laughs> love of her life. And thank God they met in the most strangest of ways. And it's just like, look, if you're having a midlife crisis, you have to find your manic pixie 12-year-old <laughs> to impregnate. <laughs> and reconcile with your dad. Of course you have to reconcile with your dad. Um, yeah, with... Uh, who played his dad? Uh, it was... Um, uh, the president. Um, yeah. What's his, uh, what's his name? I'm dying. From the West Wing. God damn it. 
I can't believe I forgot. His, his father's played by Martin Sheen. Martin um, Sheen. So, I mean, there's a, I, I think it's interesting. I'm just going to quickly jump over. There was a West Wing episode written uh, <laughs> by, by John Wells uh, where, where he has the president played by Martin Sheen just basically ignore a comet coming towards the earth <laughs> that would destroy it. Um, and he's Which just kind of reasoning. like looking at maps casually being like, I mean, if it has to hit, it it should probably hit a major city. Uh, that way it doesn't go into the ocean and cause tidal waves. You know, <laughs> like, just sort of casually looking at that as if it's not a real problem. And then, like, luckily it passes them by. But, <laughs> like, just a crazy idea for an episode. <laughs> yeah, that's literally insane. <laughs> um, okay, but back to... <laughs> back to seeking a friend. To a friend, yeah. Um, you know, so it's it's just like a weird road trip journey movie. Um, right. There's a dog I, named there, Sorry because... The, the dog the, is the most lackluster part of this entire film. He has no purpose I tell you, he's there. no Sam from... I Am Legend. <laughs> got there eventually um my brain is fried today it's fine Um, it's it's late guys (laughs) don't worry about it uh this is a a late night one um yeah so we got steve carell like bopping around and i i just i hated that last scene i i I, I liked saccharine and terrible i cried a lot but it's more my own existential dread (laughs) <laughs> like that that's the thing that I definitely found with both this and um don't look up like I I cried at the end of both of these not mm. necessarily because of a how great the movie was or wasn't but it's like sad. they they tap into this like really deep existential fear for me right. you know of just like the finality of it all right like there is which no is definitely the point of melancholia chance. you know right. where yes. the planet comes and destroys all you really see is you know these two sisters and their and their child you know and her sister's child um the husbands are there aren't they no, no. it's just the three of them under this you know makeshift stick like teepee um wigwam whatever uh and then the the planet hits um and it's yeah. about depression hence the yeah. title uh yeah. but it's interesting that it portrays this sort of like bifurcated depression one being like the doom seeking like feeling nothing you know mm-hmm. which just aches for death because mm-hmm. it feels nothing and the other being the anxious um you know, constantly panicking that death is coming and it's right around the corner. So it's sort of like the two destroy each other, but they find peace in that destruction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's an accurate reading of the film, but that's yeah. what I took from it. And uh, yeah. and I think the planets colliding, you know, it's very, I don't know, it's like two heavenly bodies just colliding in space, and it was also meaningless. It didn't have any point at all, which is the exact opposite that Seeking a Friend has, where everything is baked with meaning. 
the coincidences <laughs> that govern your life, they're really important, you know? Like, they, like you know, sort of the, destiny. the inciting incident is that, well, I don't know the inciting incident, but <laughs> he, get, he gets a letter <laughs> from his long-lost love, and he's right. like, I have to go find her now that the world's ending. Right, um, and... Kira Knightley's got to find a plane to fly back to uh, England where her yeah. family is. Yeah. And neither of them do those things because yep. they really wanted to spend their last moments with Each other. some dude. Some guy. <laughs> Someone they met a week ago. <laughs> hoo Um... Yeah, so I, I want to talk a little bit just for the similarities with how it ends, um, which was just like a little COVID-19 pandemic project uh, in L.A. It's got a lot of, you know, celebrity cameos in it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just basically this uh, young, you know, young adult. I don't know. It's just this one woman's story of trying to solve all of her emotional problems in one afternoon you know (laughs) by going to every person that she has wronged or feels animosity towards Mm -hmm. and uh and reconciling in rapid fire fashion Mm -hmm. accompanied by the metaphysical body of her younger self okay and other people's younger selves are also materializing so like fred armison shows up and he's like hey I'm actually 90 years old. And I'm in that building. I, I'm his younger self. It's crazy that you can see me. I'm Fred Armisen. Um, <laughs> so, you know, stuff like that happens. And then, like, one of the big scenes is um, is the main character reconciling with her father, mm-hmm. uh, Bradley Whitford, who mm. cheated on his wife, which caused her to leave him. And so then... And therefore abandoning her daughter. Mm -hmm. And so then the daughter also has to reconcile with her. Mm -hmm. And the rapid fire nature of it, it's like, oh, we have to get it all out in the open. And I think it it does capture something. Like, I don't know. Like, it's not a good film. (laughs) But (laughs) but I I think it does capture something in, like, the inauthenticity of catharsis. Like, Mm. yeah, she reconnects with all these people. But, like, what she really needed to reconnect with was her younger self, you know, right. was just reconciling with her own guilt about what she did to her own life. Right. You know, um, it's a strange little movie. Um, again, I don't recommend, <laughs> but it's, it's another, yeah. you know, the earth is going to end. So yeah. let's just, let's just wrap up all of our social <laughs> problems and all of our emotional issues, just like Steve Carell. Yeah. Um, did you see, let's talk about another movie. <laughs> um, Bart's Comet. This is a Simpsons episode. Oh yeah, yeah. I think this, you know, I, one of the first comedies, you know, that that really lampooned the the idea of the 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 comet coming to hit the Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was like in the '90s, around when Deep Impact and Armageddon are becoming big. Yeah. And so they have the big scene with the plan where we're going to launch a rocket at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just I've... miss. <laughs> just goes awry. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dr. Frank uh, yelling, Glavin. Um, 
I love those scenes. What what did you think about this episode? I enjoyed it. Um, you know, it it's classic Simpsons like farce. Uh, yeah. You know, like anything that can go wrong will go wrong. You know, of course it it starts with uh, like Bart getting one up on uh, Principal right. Skinner and like the right. they all try to go into the. Um, the bomb shelter or the meteor shelter at the right. end. Flanders has a, yeah. a bomb shelter and everybody crams into it. And then they have this debate about who they should kick out because they can't close the door and they won't all fit. And so they're like, well, what will we need in the new society? Well, we'll need me. We'll need, we'll <laughs> need Krusty the Clown because you got to have someone to make someone laugh and you need Mo to serve drinks. <laughs> And you need and, someone to keep the power on. Homer, you can do that. <laughs> and so they get through the whole list, and the only person they don't need is Ned Flanders. <laughs> and so they kick him out of his own bomb shelter. But it ends up being, like, I think the most heartwarming story on this list. Mm. The most heartwarming television or film portrayal of a comet hitting the Earth. Because yeah. people, people don't want to see... Uh, Ned die alone and yeah. Homer is actually the one to say like how dare we let that man <laughs> die without us uh, and so they they all come out and they're singing que sera sera and it's, <laughs> it's one of the most iconic Simpsons scenes I love it so much uh, and then they all survive because the meteor what right. happens to the meteor? the meteor okay. burns up just oh, like Homer right. says and when it yeah. lands it's no bigger than a chihuahua's head <laughs> And, and then of they course collapses like, the, the the shelter. Right, yeah. So of course if they if anyone had stayed in the shelter as a coward, they would have died. Which is I mean, it's a symbolic thing about solidarity itself, you know. Right. You know, being willing to stand in the face of certain doom against doom mm-hmm. in unity and not, you know, not go t- through like the process of picking a lottery to see who gets to survive and who doesn't mm-hmm. to to rationalize or you know say oh you get to go but you can't you can bring your kid but not if he's sick you know mm-hmm. all those kind of things and those narratives really are very central to the film's deep impact and then the recent greenland which are both mm-hmm. films about the government's plans to create shelters and how they become these sort of um, eugenicist-like, horrifying stories of, of human murder, you know, just mm-hmm. culling huge swaths of the population by only saving one. Um, right. Which uh, I think, you know, it's interesting to have Morgan Freeman as one of the first actors cast as, you know, a black president to be in charge of one of the (laughs) The biggest eugenics (laughs) experiments on film, you know, portrayed by the American government. You know, he institutes martial law and then says, all right, we're going to pick, like, I don't know, a couple thousand people to survive. You better have good skills. No one over 50, no one with a disability, no one with an illness. All right, uh, and we'll call them on the phone and see what happens. And then... You know, they do their best to try and stop the um, stop the asteroid or comet or whatever it is from hitting. Um, 
and they kind of stop part of it. Like, they blow up part of it, but a big chunk still hits, and a lot of people die. Um, there's another reconciling with a father and daughter. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what the, what the commonality is with that. I guess just death. Yeah, and associating I think, that with an aging father figure. I mean, it's it's the finality, our last chance at reconciliation in general. You know, I think it's a common right. end of the world trope. Right. Well, I I think you know, an interesting thing about this one is just how like Sorkin-y it is. You know, it's like it begins with like the news coverage of these things, and it's like this hyper competent young female reporter who thinks that E L E, which stands for um, extinction level event, is actually Ellie, who is the president's mistress or something. Oh, okay. Um, so she's like not a big reporter, but she ends up getting out in front of this story, and she's like mm-hmm. our main character for a big chunk of it. And then it's also like Elijah Wood, he discovered it by accident, but everybody thought that he died in this car crash. So then he becomes famous after they announce the the comet's discovery because like, mm-hmm. oh, he discovered the comet, but everyone thought he was dead. Um, <laughs> just like weird Sorkin-y stuff. And the only thing that makes me think Sorkin, as opposed to like any of the other, you know, uh, schmaltzy writers of the 90s is uh, that John Wells apparently did a pass on this. And as I said, John Wells wrote The West Wing <laughs> in the later seasons. Um, um, okay. You know, speaking of father-daughter relationships, though, uh, we got to yeah. talk about Ice Age collision. collision. Mm, I'm going to take that again. Speaking <laughs> of father-daughter relationships, we got to talk about Ice Age Collision Course. Uh, oh, of course. What is this? The what, sixth? what better a subject for a children's <laughs> film? Um, oh, and this is one of the very few uh, films where the meteor hitting the Earth is actually caused by humans. The other one being... Um, uh, no, actually, Meteor, it's still not caused by humans. Yeah, this is the only one where humans. it's caused by humans. So, Or not Wait. by humans, but by Scrat. <laughs> But Scrat is, like, canonically, like, the god of the Ice Age universe. He is, like, <laughs> you know, my my partner said he is, like, a, a Loki variant, you know? He is... No, he, he is an agent of chaos. <laughs> he creates the plots of all the Ice Age movies. Um, uh, what, but, which Ice Age film is this? Is it, like, the 10th? The <laughs> I want to say 5th. Okay. It is the 5th. Okay. Confirmed great that's wild i'm so glad there aren't six of these but there is a series coming straight to disney plus <laughs> oh no um so yeah this is like picking up a lot where like the lost world one left off in that there is a lost world right explain to me what yeah. happens in collision course that has any value to our discussion <laughs> father-daughter relationships elaborate <laughs> You know, this one is about the anxiety that Manny the Mammoth has about his daughter getting married and, you know, going to wander around instead of hanging out with him and not her loser husband. So it's it's basically the same as seeking a friend because it's his (laughs) midlife crisis. It just happens to be related to parenting. Yeah. 
his midlife crisis is represented by a giant rock hurtling towards the earth. Yeah. That they and they repel it with magic shiny rocks. Magnetic rocks. Which are magic. Because yes. the Because the rock gets like here. And then, sorry, this is not a video podcast. The rock gets like <laughs> 10 feet above the earth. And then the magnets go whoosh and then suddenly the rock is gone and i just don't even get the point (laughs) anymore of the ice (laughs) age movies like in the beginning like humans are already around yeah and like that is the plot is that humans are around yeah and the ice is melting and then in the second one they melt and dinosaurs come out of the ice and then in the third one, there's more dinosaurs. The fourth one is called Continental Drift, and it's like a pirate movie. I don't even get that Interesting. one. And then the fifth one, it's like, we've done ex- the extinction narrative like six times. Like, <laughs> there's only been four movies, and we've done it mo- multiple times per movie. They've done How- all the other extinction events, so they have to do the asteroid. I Yeah, I it's... I don't even get it. Um, but yeah, so that is our, our children's movie corner, I guess, for the episode. <laughs> Anything else to say about Collision Course? Uh, no, it's a bad movie. Don't watch it. Um, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were a couple other like literary influences that might be worth noting. Um, sure. Arthur C. Clarke wrote Hammer of God which came a couple decades after Hammer of Lucifer, or sorry, Lucifer's Hammer. Uh, Both were referring to, like, this, you know, this potential for a rock to to hit the earth. And the first one talks about what might happen after the rock hits the earth and how people survive in the dystopia. And Hammer of God is more about speculating how a future society might deflect these things. And Arthur C. Clarke remarked that it was, like, Maybe this will help people decide on how to do that. Um, And I think that a lot of this fiction emerges because of precisely our increased knowledge of prehistory. You know, it was Mm. it was only in 1980 that we first had the theory with solid ground that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. Okay, I didn't realize that. So, yeah, and then it wasn't until, like, 12 years after that that we really had solid evidence and, and things had been corroborated and that became the established Theory. idea of how these how this particular extinction event happened. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea that, like, all life on Earth could be wiped out and replaced with just, you know, a few barely surviving creatures, you know, that is, I think, something that really shakes shakes our foundation of like human inevitability i guess you know Mm -hmm. that it could all just end in a big extinction right armageddon is about how (laughs) people should be able to have sex and work on oil rigs (laughs) uh bruce willis is a is the best oil driller around he and his daughter played by Liv tyler uh live together on an oil rig and have since she was a little girl and when Ben Affleck has sex with her Bruce Willis gets a shotgun and tries to kill him 
in in cold blood. <laughs> but he's the hero. Uh, yeah. Well, fathers should protect their daughters from Ben Affleck. Uh, ben Affleck. <laughs> um. So th- there's a scene where Ben Affleck says to Liv Tyler, uh, "Hey, you know, do." You- or she says to him, do you think anybody else is doing what we're doing right now? Where he's like touching her boob. And he's like, I damn well hope so. Otherwise, why are we doing this? What are we fighting for? You know? So it's like, we are fighting for the, for the protection of the right for man to touch boob. Yeah. For heterosexual love to exist. Right. What's, what's which I the think point it's interesting. Of- What's the point of it all to stare lovingly into Steve Carell's eyes as you die? Right. Well, I think, yeah, I think some of the other films sort of, like, skip over the part of, like, well, what what are we, what is really at stake here besides all human life, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes it's about, like, there's nothing at stake if human life is gone, you know? But this one, it's, like, loving. (laughs) Kissing. Touching, touching boobs. Touching boobs. Um, <laughs> yeah, but Bruce Willis dies in space. Steve Buscemi is uh, is not is not very good in this one. Um, and there's Ugh. a Russian. There's a crazy Russian from a space station. And it's the it's this very like post Cold War movie. Um, and like prior to the '90s, like all sci-fi films were about the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Like Meteor, which okay. was about uh, about Sean Connery, he's he's built this he's built this uh, satellite to shoot nuclear weapons at a meteor, but they've they've done they've pointed the missiles down to try and threaten the Soviet Union, <laughs> and the okay. Soviet Union built their own. To attack the U.S., but Sean Connery's got to convince the Russians to admit that they have these nuclear weapons and then shoot them at the uh, at the meteor with the Americans because we we can't do this alone. So it's very much about you know two sides divided by war that are united in common cause to save the Earth, and it's just like a classic disaster movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Have we reached any kind of conclusion? I are, do we have anything <laughs> that we can bundle together into a common thread across these like really weird different movies? I mean, well, why an asteroid as the threat? You know, like I what... mean, just because it could happen at any time, it's just incredibly, incredibly, incredibly unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it's something which requires no leap in logic. Sure. So it's immediate. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think it can serve both that need for, you know, an, a sudden and immediate threat where, oh no, there's suddenly a comet, it's gonna be here in ten days, or, you know. Right. Oh, we've got six months until this comet. I think that the scale of it is also, I mean, when it was still about nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. you know, it could be a representation of a nuclear disaster, you know? Right, 
It's similar um, in scale. But 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 oddly enough, it requires nuclear weapons to stop. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's this ironic thing. There was a Sliders episode. Anybody remember Sliders? No. They went to parallel Earths, and they went to one that was about to be hit by an asteroid, but it was a world where they had never invented the atom bomb because Einstein made a like mistake. So they have to, on the fly, invent nuclear weapons, but they're like, oh, wait, if we introduce nuclear weapons, will that destabilize their whole geopolitical whatever? And they also have uh, an orgy scene. <laughs> Gotta, going on in the background. Gotta get a good orgy scene in there. Gotta get yeah. a little uh, anarchy. Um, yeah, and a little bit of, uh, you know, one-on-one romance, you know, just like uh, in all of these. Right. And I, I think the thing that is also, you know, beneficial for the for using an asteroid as your plot threat, you know, your impending doom, you know... One, there's not much you can do about it. It's inevitable. Um, you know, well, there's plenty of plans. You know, that's the thing. Like, right? But the like, government has real plans. So many of these these plans fall apart. You know, and like in in a comedy, you know, it's easy to hand wave it. Or um, you know, in in a satire, it's supposed to fail. Um, you right. Know, but like, even in the the non comedies, things fall apart because. It's only the second act, and you have to <laughs> right. have a complication. Um, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Right. Um, but while all that's going on, you don't also have to deal with, like, you know, th- the disasterness of disaster movies on the ground. You know, like, any disasters that are happening on the ground are human-made. Well, that's not really true of most of the disaster movie versions of it, where they almost always have some kind of early explosions from Mm. fragments that are coming in faster, blowing up this city here or that city there. But the big one is coming, you know, the end all be all. You know, it's sort of like in any disaster, like everything bad that can happen will Mm -hmm. up until the point where it destroys whatever the stakes are. And I think, you know... As you tie it into disaster movies as a whole, I'd, I'd like to return to the Susan Sontag piece, The Imagination of Disaster. Sure. Because um, she's talking about, like, science fiction in general. But there's a lot of things that I think really center it on these types of films. Um, she says, The lore of such generalized disaster as a fantasy is that it releases one from normal obligations. Uh, that it's like an extreme moral simplification where... You know, any cruel or amoral thing that you would want to do, uh, you can do, or you must do, and it becomes morally acceptable to do so. So, you know, for example, in Greenland, where uh, a family has to get to Greenland to get into a a safe, a safe house, you know, a a shelter, um, you know, the main character kills somebody in self-defense but because you had to do it to save your family. And, you know, imagining the disaster is, is sometimes about imagining what tragedies you could inflict on others. Um, and then Sontag also states uh, that science fiction films are one of the purest forms of spectacle. That is, we're rarely inside anyone's feelings. We're merely spectators. We watch. And I think for the disaster 
movie versions of this. This is absolutely true. Like, mm. you don't feel the force of people dying when they die, you know? Right. You're just watching the spectacle of disaster. And there's mm-hmm. an appeal in being somebody who isn't in that disaster. Right. Um, you get to separate yourself from it and feel a sense of safety, just like in a horror movie. Right. Where you're, you feel safer because you're not being attacked by a demon. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Or a Frankenstein. Um <laughs> Uh, and so she describes science fiction films as inviting a dispassionate aesthetic view of destruction and violence a technological view so in these films technology Mm. is more of a character than the actual characters and I think that applies Mm. to a lot of these that you know Sean Connery in Meteor is kind of a boring dude but he invented this big spaceship that shoots rockets and like half the movie is just watching rockets fly in a straight line towards an asteroid (laughs) a meteor sorry um i don't know what do you what do you think of that as like for like the armageddons and the deep impacts that like the technology is the character and that we are outside of the emotion even if we are watching somebody have emotions of fear and distress we are not experiencing them in the same way Sure. Um, hmm. I don't know if I agree with that fully, just because, you know, we see these technologies at use in non, in the non-disaster versions of this as well, or, you know, in the satires and the comedies, um, where, you know, like we talked for a long time about all of the technology in that aspect and how it's deployed and used and the the pr- preparation of it in, like, Don't right. Look well, Up. Well, I mean, in Don't Look Up, like, the mechanism that we're, that we're observing, the technology is really, like, the communication technologies. Like, it's a story about, like, where the main character is, like, a nebulous social media presence as opposed to a specific middle-aged dude, you know? Sure. Um, I don't know. It's, it's tough to, to break that apart. Um, Like I, I, I think, you know, I think she's got something in that the technology can be characterized. Um, and that it, it certainly colors the movie. Um, but I, I don't know if it, she says, things oh, rather always. than helpless humans are the locus of values because we experience them rather than people as the sources of power. So I guess it's more mm. about that than, okay. than the emotions. But okay. But yeah, I think I think definitely like in the films, the, the things that can have agency are not really people. They yeah. are the machines. Yeah. Um, she also says... There's absolutely no social criticism of even the most implicit kind in science fiction films. Also, the notion of science as a social activity interlocking with social and political interests is unacknowledged. And for that, I think that these films offer an interesting counterexample because a lot of times they are directly interested in the ways science dismisses or the way uh, politics dismisses science and or challenges it or has conflicting interests with it. And the ways that people fail to, um, you know, fail to understand the way that science is impacting their lives. So I think there is a social commentary to it. 
in a lot of these films. I Even agree. the stupid ones like Armageddon. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I sort of wholeheartedly disagree with the idea that science fiction is not trying to comment on social critiques. No, no, it's not whether phenomena. or not it's trying to comment. I think what she's talking about there is more social criticism as in like the roles of people with each other, you know? It's about broader like societal questions. Um, so like the social question of like especially in the 1950s like should women be like involved in these processes of Mm -hmm. of negotiating with alien life you know Mm -hmm. um or you know uh who's going to be most impacted by this like poorer communities you know more uh more ethnically diverse communities or is it just going to be like a generic white person town uh, right. That gets hit by you know some kind of the disaster. others, the others, yeah. Um, so I think that's that's more what she's talking about, and uh, you know, th- talking about the relationship between science and uh, and the social and political interests. I think that is something that is lacking from a lot of other science fiction. That it more I becomes think... just a story about you know. A, a, a story about a, a mysterious other that is that is a danger to people right i i mean it can certainly be it can certainly be uh a genre that revels in you know laser guns woohoo and <laughs> <laughs> like look at this cool planet and blah blah, blah and doesn't seriously consider the implications you know the social implications of the world that it's creating um but i i don't know if that's the the way she writes about it it seems like she's saying it's endemic to the genre which i i disagree with i think it's potentially been a a problem historically but i think there are science fiction um series that like well, she's specifically to talking this. about films as opposed to books. She she contrasts them by saying, you know, these okay. these books they tend to be heavier on the science but lower on spectacle because films are able to be more spectacular. So mm-hmm. you know, the science that's missing from the films. She's trying to actually talk about the films as having more value than the books in some ways because whereas books are overly concerned with the technicalities of science and the technicalities of how they would interact with a society. The films are about exposing the audience to this grand imagination and spectacle of disaster, which serves a psychological role for people in that it allows us to confront not just a fear of death, but a fear of global, societal, planetary death. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what all of these films are about. And so she says the following... Uh, there is a historically, or sorry, it is not enough to note that science fiction allegories are one of the new myths about the perennial human anxiety about death. Again, there is a historically specifiable twist which intensifies the anxiety, or better, the trauma suffered by everyone in the middle of the 20th century, when it became clear that from now on until the end of human history, every person would spend his individual life not only under the threat of individual death, which is certain, but of something almost unsupportable psychologically, collective incineration and extinction, which could come at any time virtually without warning. 
So that is, I think, that is why I wanted to talk about this article. Because I think sure. that piece is about this particular genre within a genre, trope within a genre, plot mm-hmm. that repeats from 1913 to 2021. You know? <laughs> right. That we're talking about planetary destruction and extermination. Right. Which is a fear that is new, that really didn't exist outside of the religious, you know, um, oh God, what's the word? Eschatology? Yes, right, eschatological. So I I guess I was saying uh, that really this fear is new. We're experiencing it for the first time outside of the eschatology of, you know, religion predicting Mm -hmm. the end of the world. Uh, we are faced with actual possible human extinction. Mm-hmm. And we think about it all the time. Even when we're not thinking about it, we think about it. And that's what a disaster film is now. <laughs> and it comes in waves, you know? Right. In the 90s, there was a wave. People were like, it's all going to end. It's all over. And now we're experiencing it again. But it's an echo it is a, it is a ha-ha as we fade into darkness. <laughs> and that is yeah. spook. That is scary. Yeah. I don't like it. Um, like I said, I cried at the end of a bunch of these movies. <laughs> Just because of, you know, it, it's, it's existential. It is, it is the ultimate threat you know right but in the 90s you know the threat is avoided you know and people don't cry at the end they they clap (laughs) you did it which which is incredible because the 90s is like you know that's that's the beginning of the modern green movement (laughs) and like and nothing is changed about it in that way they were thinking about it as but nothing is changed we have solved all human problems you know, we now have we... <laughs> we have finished. The Earth can end, and that's okay. But we have gotten so good at living, at surviving the Cold War, <laughs> that we could probably stop Doomsday. Even if God literally threw down his hammer and split the world <laughs> open, we'd be fine. Um, and, th- I, you know, God is a big part of all of these, for sure. God's punishment for man, you know, that's common. But... Mm-hmm. What does it mean if we just say, fuck you, God? We're going to live anyway. <laughs> we got some nukes. Yeehaw. Right. Um, yeah. Let's, maybe we should finish there. Do you have anything in particular no. to end on? Um, David, if you were going to get hit with a meteor, what would you spend your last moments doing? probably record one final podcast and we'll see you next week (laughs) bye bye bye